So this is part two of the passage that we read on Easter and explored last week, uh, because remember, again, Easter is the season. Uh, it's also kind of part two of the sermon uh, from last week. And if you remember or uh, need a refresher, um, we focused on four good news words from God, which are then capitalized and bold-faced in the resurrection of Jesus. And a refresher, these words from God are, I love you, I am with you, be not afraid, and walk with me. Each of these are persistent declarations throughout Scripture of God's desire to see creation flourish and be redeemed and participate with God in the renewal of all things. So hold these words kind of in the front of your mind, uh, if you can, kind of soft focus on them and look through them or, or, um, or, or, or just put them in your pocket for later, right? So here's uh, the end of Matthew's gospel, starting in verse 16. Uh, if, if you're in uh, your, your Bible or Pew Bible, go to the very last page of Matthew, which is the first book of the New Testament. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Jesus came near and spoke to them. I have received all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. Look, I myself will be with you every day until the end of the present age. Amen. Yeah. So those are the final words of Matthew's good news. The resurrected Jesus, who's gone ahead of his disciples, as he told the Marys he would, meets them on a mountaintop. When they encounter Jesus, we're told, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came near and spoke to them. This is one of those sentences, they worshipped him and some doubted, that some scripture scholars point to, uh, to support the authenticity of what's going on here. Frankly, because it's not really a good look, right? <laughs> they worshipped him, but some doubted. The reason being, if Matthew's making all this stuff up, he wouldn't embarrass the movement by writing in this sort of doubt. Like the cross, which stands at the center of our Christian faith, it has to be real or else no one would imagine it. Like, no one would imagine to write it that way. So the resurrected Jesus, who's been dead just hours earlier, shows up. This is the Jesus who the church has come to believe has harrowed hell. That means has gone down as deep as you can go to the deepest depths to rattle the cages and break the chains of those held captive by sin. And this Jesus has now shown up on a mountain to appear to his closest friends and erstwhile companions who've scattered to the wind after his death. If we remember, this rushing Jesus movement has kind of slowed down to a trickle. Started at 12. We kind of pared down to 11, lost a guy. Then we got down to two, the Marys at the empty tomb. Now we're building it back up to 11, right? This is not very impressive stuff. This is not a pyramid scheme, or else if it is, it's a really bad pyramid scheme, right? This resurrected, victorious Jesus 
can't even get his guys completely on board. Sure, they worshipped him, but some doubted. You'd expect kind of 100% charge through the wall buy-in. Any like good leader of a movement or entrepreneur of a startup or planner of a church would want more buy-in than Jesus is getting from his guys right here. And I find this section oddly comforting, and maybe you do too. Origin stories are really important. Every superhero has an origin story uh, that tells you a whole lot about who they are. And even the church operating in the power of the, re- the resurrection's origin story is, re- is replete with doubt and uncertainty. But notice this. They worshipped him and some doubted. Maybe I'm reading too hard into this, but it seems to me that when the nail-scarred, wounded healer shows up, they all worshipped, though some of them also doubted. Like, that's, that's kind of how I'm choosing to read this. They all worshipped him, and some also doubted. Worship and doubt are able to kind of coexist in the same space, even in the same people, and that's okay. This is a really specific kind of doubt, or at least it's a specific um, way to bear or carry doubt. This is the sort of doubt that leans into worship, maybe even just a little bit. This is a different sort of doubt than the doubts of these disciples' previous few days that that made them take off. They weren't leaning in. They were taking off. They were getting out of there. And I I think the difference is the possibility um, that happens when you have an encounter with the risen Jesus. that's That's why they're leaning in a little more than they did. And then what does Jesus do? Did Jesus scold them for not getting it? No. <laughs> Y'all are asleep out there. Jesus leans in too. Jesus makes up the space between what they don't know and what they just, the little bit that they need to continue in their worship. It says Jesus comes near and speaks to them. Jesus came near to them. So hear this today, church. In your doubt, lean into Jesus and he will come near to you. That's simple and kind of small and it feels kind of too small and too simple sometimes. Lean in to being around those who maybe just in this season believe a little more or have a little more faith or believe a little better than you and whose faith in the faithful one can kind of float you for a little while. I think that was kind of described by our our graduate friends. They all uh, expected to learn in a book and in a classroom, and and they realized that they found people around them that would hold them up when it was hard. Uh, People who might be a vessel for Jesus to come near to you in your life, find those people and, and come near to them. Lean in. There are better and worse ways to experience seasons of doubt, and the better is definitely to just keep showing up. To show up in prayer, like show up even in short emotionless prayers. Show up in scripture reading, even like rote and confusing reading. Show up at church when singing seems really forced or if you don't have much of a voice. And show up at the table, like everyone's got to eat. Because when you show up at the table, you'll be met and fed, and Jesus will draw near to you. Jesus always responds to doubt with presence. 
not answers, not necessarily resolution, but with Jesus' very self. When Jesus draws near, instead of disqualifications, he doesn't say to them, let's separate the sheep and the goats here, let's separate those who doubt and those who purely worship. No, he responds by giving them instructions for participating in this new thing. He responds with a call, with something to do, with a commission. Even in their like bifurcated, worship-doubting state, Many of us know this great commission by heart. I have received all authority on heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Look, I myself will be with you every day into the end of this present age. That is the commission. That is what he speaks to worshiping, doubting disciples. And these are conflicted final words for Matthew's gospel. On the one hand, if you're here, like in this building, especially if you are not of Jewish ancestry, and even really if you are, you are likely a byproduct of this great commission. Go to the ends of the earth, to all the people, panta ta ethne, all the nations. You are one of the nations, right? You are one of those people, I am, we are, some of those people who were on the outside, who've had the door swung wide open by the gracious invitation of the Spirit resurrected Jesus. And on the other hand, so th that's amazing, right? The Great Commission is pretty great. Not a clever name, right? But on the other hand, we've seen this go pretty wrong. You, you, you can fill this out. Maybe your younger selves have even been a part of like the door-to-door -door salesmanship of this sort of kind of evangelism, right? But let's take a step back for a second and remember and rehab a couple of these words outside of the strange things that we've made them. Let's find out what's actually so great about the commission. First word that we cringe at is the word authority. When Jesus says it, we go, Jesus, come on, man. Um, it seems that you can justify about anything by claiming authority. For this reason, the commission has been kind of a tool often of like bad things like colonialism and Western white supremacy and other kind of spiritualizing impulses that do deep harm and damage to real bodies while focusing on higher things. Leaving behind the other great commission, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourselves. But here's the thing. When I hear all authority on heaven and on earth is given to me, my mind flits over to something else, flits over to this master story of the Christ hymn in Philippians 2. And I, I even have a slide just from a couple weeks ago, so I know you couldn't have forgotten it by now. Jesus, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God as something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. He was being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, and this starts to uptick, therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
You see, Jesus' authority, the authority that's been given to him, is predicated on this non-presumption, this self-emptying, this identification with the lowest and the actual sacrificial death of a, on a criminal's cross. So next time you want to be in authority, or next time you hand over authority to someone else, consider that this is the pattern and these are the prerequisites for authority. Only then, only after Jesus has hit rock bottom with and for us, does God raise him up, lift him, exalt him, give a nameless slave the name above all names. And this authority is over the bowing knees and confessing tongues all over heaven and all over earth, and we're told even under the earth that Jesus is in charge, that Jesus is Lord. Do what he says because he knows what he's talking about. He's been there. He's trustworthy. He's faithful. Give him your faith. Give him your everything. Because of this sort of authority, the commission sends us out to proclaim this Lord, not from above or over, but from below or from beside, with and like Jesus. The tongues confessing and knees bowing on earth and in heaven and under the earth. <laughs> this means the Great Commission is as or more concerned with the way of the gospel than even the message of the good news. Because in the resurrected Jesus, we see that the medium is also the message, right? That God would become a human, not just any human, but a poor Jew with his back against the wall, one who suffered injustice and accusation and betrayal and the ultimate death of an outsider, but is vindicated and bears authority, means that we need to learn a new way. A new way of doing everything. A way that's not ours. We need to graft into God's thoughts in ways which are above and beyond and perhaps even below or beneath our ways. That's the sort of authority given. That's the sort of authority that is gifted to us as friends, as daughters and sons, as parents, as neighbors. Authority born of death in sacrifice, in a rugged commitment to the flourishing and benefit of the other. That's what authority is. The other word that needs a little help is this word disciple. Oftentimes we misunderstand this instruction, go and make disciples of all nations. It's come to mean, at least it, it does in my mind, you guys probably got this, but it means, like, broadcast the message about Jesus so that others can take it or leave it. And once we've gotten it off our chest, we're no longer held responsible, right? That's, that's kind of evangelism 101. We get the good news to as many people as possible, hoping that the conversion rate works and the message will kind of stick with a certain number of people, right? Does all this match anything we've ever seen in the life of Jesus? What if... Making disciples is a terribly long-term, inefficient, and ultimately risky and probably failing process of building into someone else and never letting them go even when they leave you or don't really get it. <laughs> I mean, in Jesus' life, do we have any evidence that Jesus made more than like 
maybe like a dozen, maybe two dozen like good disciples during his three-year ministry. Like there are crowds, but crowds come and crowds go. Like he's got these disciples and they leave him. Some defect from him. By the standards of what we've been told or what we for whatever reason have come to expect about discipleship and disciple making, Jesus himself fails as a practitioner of the version of this version of evangelical Christianity. And if you think you know better than Jesus, he's not your Lord, like definitionally, right? So perhaps it's because being and making disciples is much more messy and dynamic and costly than we mostly assume. Like, maybe we need to check our definition of what it means to be a disciple. And I really like Dallas Willard's. Dallas Willard says, discipleship is the process of becoming who Jesus would be if he were you. It's a process. It might take a while. It might take your whole life. It's going to require quite a bit of discernment and honesty with yourself and from others. You need someone else to help you become more like Jesus. This isn't just between you and God. This is why discipleship and baptism are linked. Go and make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Simply because baptism, like we saw and spoke about on Easter, is the entry. It's the entry and the participation in the triune life of God through joining in on Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. So in baptism, like discipleship, you're saying, with your body, and Noah said, up here, and I put her in that water and I helped her get out of the water, (laughs) you're saying, my life is in Christ. As Paul says, really simply and profoundly, to live is Christ. Which also then means that even dying is a win when to live is Christ. This makes teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you much more of kind of a downstream venture than trying to swim upstream. If you're becoming the sort of person Jesus would be if he were you, then you're going to obey. You're going to listen. You're going to learn. Obedience becomes just a part of you and something you do. It's, it's not second nature, or it's not nature, it's actually second nature, and it's supernatural. It's something that the Spirit does to you with others. This is what it means to become a person who is, who is in this present and living Christ. Not something that you just look backwards and try to be like Jesus, but that Christ is actually living in you. Disciples, women and men who spend their time and life in the presence of Jesus. So graduates, this means that you've entered into or are getting ready to enter into a new season in your discipleship with Jesus. You've been in the who would Jesus be if he was me as a student kind of mode. And now you'll shift to something a little different, maybe even something a little unknown. Many other folks here are trying to figure out what this looks like, being and making disciples in a new season, in a new place, or in a new age, or in a new way. This discipleship call shifts and kind of customizes depending on who you are and where God has put you. That's the beautiful thing about it. It's it's custom. It, it, It fits you. 
You don't have to be Jesus like someone else. But what if there's, what if there's a major challenge in this? Like what, what if some of the, the major discipleship challenges are, are things that we normally take for granted and we don't consider as discipleship challenges? Like what if the new job you just signed on to becomes not just a contract for the 40 to 50 hours of work in a week that is going to make sure you also get paid and benefits, but what if when you sign that, when you, when you join in on that, you're making a covenant as a disciple-making disciple of Jesus to be present to those you'll encounter? to spend time with them and even disagree with them at your work and that you're going to embody and share the hope, healing, and hospitality we have in Christ to them, even just for a few, even just like a few others, like not everybody, uh, not scattershot, like laser-focused in deeply personal and committed ways. What if that is what you're signing on for when you get a new job? Or what if when you sign that mortgage or lease, if you're not just signing a private contract and paying first and last month's rent to a bank or landlord, but what if you're making a covenant as a disciple-making disciple of Jesus to be present in the neighborhood and to your neighbors in justice-oriented and shalom-bringing ways? What if that's what that's about? Or what if, what if when your kid gets into that preschool or daycare or school, and you're not just cashing in on the, the wait list lottery ticket, but you're actually making a covenant as a disciple-making disciple of Jesus to be present to the Spirit's work in and through the lives of these little ones who are witnessing the kingdom and inviting kinship across normal social boundaries towards a beloved community in their classrooms and with their classmates and their families and their teachers. What if, what if, what if you're doing that as a disciple? So it takes some of this imagination. I listened back a couple years ago. Matt Hoffman uh, preached on this passage. He didn't know that I, I listened back. I do my homework. And I love how he stated the sort of missionary intensity which should exist no matter where you've been placed or called. He said, and I quote, the difference between the one who goes to rural China and the one who goes to suburban Durham is geography and that's it. <laughs> Dig deeply into this location, whatever your location is. We have common location, and that's pretty cool because some of our circles intersect and overlap and we can work together, but we also have very specific places and callings and people in our spheres. And this is not a limitation, though it often feels like it. This is an invitation. It's an invitation to the place that God has called you in which Jesus deeply loves and has already begun to renew before you even got there even in spite of you. If, if you don't notice it, it's probably already happening. You need to participate in it. So friends, before you get stressed out by all this, <laughs> this like totalizing, all-encompassing vision for what it means to be a disciple, which it is, don't think for a second that any of this is possible on your own effort. Don't get me wrong, y'all are awesome. But we don't have enough. <laughs> We don't have enough willpower or focus or resources or attention or goodness in us to sustain all of this on our own. And thank God that Jesus has promised his very presence with us until the end of the present age to achieve this. I was listening, and this happened so sneakily to, uh, to us. I was listening to this amazing interview 
the other day with Mavis Staples. Y'all know Mavis Staples. Y'all better know Mavis Staples. Um, and, the, and she was talking about her mom uh, as like the, like Pop Staples was, was like the center of the Staples family band, but Mama Staples was, was really in charge, was what was going on, right? And sh she tells a story about, and all these famous people would come to Mama Staples, either to get fed or to get wisdom or to get prayed for. And she tells a story about Nina Simone uh, calling Mama Staples from a hotel room and, and, and she can't come out, she's so depressed. She says, uh, there's a darkness in here uh, there, I, I can't get out of here. And, and, and Mama Staples says, you're right, there, there is a spirit in there, but it's God. God is, God is in there. You've mistaken it. You've mistaken this presence uh, for something else, and God is with you. And, and, and she goes on to tell on the story that the next day they looked out, they were at the, the ocean on this, uh, for this show, and the next day they looked out of the window and they kind of squinted their eyes and said, is that Nina Simone in a bikini swimming in the waves? You know, like, uh, and, and, and again, it's this, this total reversal, this idea and this recognition that God has always been with us and that Jesus pledges to be with us until the end of the age. Um, it's it changed everything for you. That, that Jesus, our teacher and our friend, won't leave us to muddle around on our own, won't leave us to our own devices, won't leave us spiraling in our own doubt that Jesus' presence continues to be a three-dimensional reassurance and assurance of those four words from God, that God loves us and is with us. So we needn't be afraid as we walk into this world with Jesus. Will you all pray with me? Uh, Father, I thank you for for this word and for this work. And mostly I, I thank you for your presence. Uh, I thank you that you've, you've pledged to be with us even when we don't recognize it or when we're not with you. Open our eyes to that. Open our hearts. Um, um, give, us, give us imaginations to, um, to be disciples and to make disciples. Uh, give us courage and grace to, to speak into our friends' lives, to tap each other on the shoulders and show each other about the holy ground that we're standing on. Um, and give us, give us courage and grace to hear. Uh, we thank you for all these things. We thank you for this uh, community to work all this stuff out and to practice and to fail and to forgive. Um, uh, we thank you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.